healthcare is broken, and the healthcare industry is not going to fix itself. Reconstructing Healthcare is a podcast series where we interview the rebel entrepreneurs working tirelessly to disrupt the health insurance marketplace. Join us as we break down everything that's wrong with the current healthcare system and provide you with a blueprint to create better results. Now, here's your host, Michael Maneri. Hello, this is Michael Maneri, and I want to welcome everyone to the Reconstructing Healthcare podcast. Today, our guest is Doug Aldean, ERISA attorney extraordinaire. Doug, welcome to the show. Michael, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. All right. Well, here's the game plan. Uh, what we seek to do here on the show is challenge status quo purchasing methods and educate our audience on non-traditional methods to either lower their health care costs or improve value for their employees. Sound like something you want to help with? Absolutely. Lots of it going out there in the marketplace right now. There sure is. There sure is. All right. Well, I'm going to start us off by reading a brief bio about you. So our listeners have a little bit of context about who you are, and uh, then we'll jump into it. So Doug Aldean is a healthcare and ERISA attorney focused on helping employers and payers offer affordable healthcare to their employees and dependents. Since 1997, Doug has represented reference-based pricing organizations, bundled payment software platforms, PPO networks, medium to small self-funded plans, TPAs, and provider-sponsored HMOs in various capacities, including uh, Herdrick versus Pegram, which was argued before the United States Supreme Court in 2001. Doug also serves as a resource to national news organizations regarding issues on healthcare and is also a consultant with the Government Relations Committee at the Self-Insured Institute of America in Washington, D.C. Anything else uh, you'd like to share with the audience, Doug? No, that's, that's good. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. So, Doug, you're not the typical guest uh, on this show. Oftentimes, we're interviewing uh, entrepreneurs and business owners who are introducing uh, innovative products and services to the marketplace. Some of the stuff that you do provides equal value. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into healthcare in the first place and, and came to focus on this you know, very niche area of the law. Absolutely. So, you know, I've been a lawyer for 28 years. I'm actually from uh, Champaign, Illinois, originally. So go Illini. But I was working at an insurance defense firm in 1997 doing dram shop cases. And if you know anything about dram shop, they are basically cases where somebody gets overly intoxicated and then they end up beating somebody up. Oh. And the, oh, that part of Illinois is... You know, central Illinois is full of dive bars and small agricultural towns where there's a lot of that going on. And uh, the partner at the time at the firm left to, to do his own thing and it wasn't able to take me just because he didn't know what business was going to follow. And so I ended up at a pure serendipity at the local HMO called Health Alliance Medical Plans. Didn't know anything about healthcare, but happened to be there and spent almost seven years there. And it was a great way to learn the business of healthcare. Mm -hmm. Unbelievable. Yeah. And that's how it happened. I love it. Well, uh, for most of us, uh, getting into healthcare and health insurance is, is typically accidental. So it sounds like that was how it worked for you. Without a doubt. So Doug, you, you do a lot of direct contracting work, which means helping payers uh, establish direct contracts with, with hospitals and facilities. And, and I want to get into all of the different things that you do to help employers you know, with direct contracting. But I want to start this interview by getting into the weeds a little bit on the network discount model, which is the foundation of 99% of health plans, you know, across the country and, and, and how the majority of commercial rather employers, you know, 
purchase healthcare. So in your opinion, what are the biggest issues with insurance products that use network discounts to establish a price for a healthcare service? There are so many fundamental flaws with that system, Michael. And and I I think if you start with the basic premise that if you let me set the price, I'll give you a 99% discount all day long. Because again, (laughs) in today's environment, with the way hospitals are raising their charges relative to their costs, I mean, discounts are, I mean, to be kind, are fictional. I think they're fairy dust. You know, you could say, you know, Blue Cross Blue Shield is giving you a great 75% discount, but you're still overpaying. Because, I mean, if you start looking at, I mean, as a percentage of Medicare, as an example, if you're looking at Southern California, which is a very expensive market, your neck of the woods, Orange yeah. County, I mean, I'm seeing charge masters at 2,000% of Medicare. Even at 70%, if you're paying 30% of that, you're still overpaying, you know? But the cost shifting that's happening to the commercial sector, it's unsustainable. There's no way any employer should bear five, six, seven, eight, nine X than what Medicare pays. I mean, because, you know, the analogy is this you and I are both standing at a bar, you order a Bud Light, I order a Bud Light, they charge you $1,200 and charge me three. Why? I mean, <laughs> because, yeah. That you that know? is that is quite possibly the best analogy I've ever heard. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate to, that. To, to simplify, I mean, just the dysfunctional nature of how healthcare services are actually priced, and it's right. Like you may have one employer who you know has has Aetna, right, and they get charged you know a hundred thousand dollars for some procedure, and you get may get another provider who has UHC and they get charged 80,000. And then you may get another employer that has Anthem and they get charged 110,000. Right. Or if you're on, on Medicaid, they charge you 12 bucks or whatever the, the math may be, <laughs> but there's no relation to what they're charging relative to their costs. And, and I, th- I think that's the key. And I, and I think that ultimately, you know, with direct contracting, you know, there's financials you can use from a facility that at least gets you in a ballpark where you can hopefully have an honest and forthright conversation with, you know, the director of pair contracting or a CFO at a local hospital and try to find some common middle ground. I mean, that's, that's the goal. Yeah. You know? Well, we'll, we'll get to that in, in a little bit, but you, you've mentioned to me the problem of hospitals turbocharging. And I'll be honest, Correct. that was the, that was the first time I've ever heard anybody use that word. And while I understand that, you know, hospitals are, are raising their prices a lot relative to for commercial plans. Um, can you describe this this concept of, of turbocharging, how it impacts employers under a network discount model, and how prevalent is this? Oh, it is uniform across the country. I mean, every single hospital, because if you think about the, the fundamental foundation, I mean, it's it's the MLR requirement under the ACA. And so what, what that requires, it requires insurance carriers to pay out 80% of every dollar they collect in terms of claims. So if you're an insurance carrier, you know, if you're left with 20% for administration, bonuses, salaries, electricity, et cetera, you'd rather have 20% of $100 billion rather than 20% of $1 billion. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. If you look at the stock prices of all the publicly traded companies, I mean, they've gone through the roof. I mean, I think even before this call, I was looking at that. I think United's gone up, what, 1,200% since 2010. I mean, it's just record profits. And that's exactly why, because I mean, think about the hospital charges X, the insurance company matches that with the premium, which is why everybody's getting priced out of the market. Co-pays, co-insurance, your deductibles have all gone through the roof. 
And, you know, most people are functionally uninsured unless you really work for a large government or company. And, yeah. and, and wouldn't you, I mean, with that sort of context, doesn't it almost feel like collusion between oh, it, it, pr- providers it and, and, and insurance carriers? I mean, that's, that's kind of what it feels like. And I feel like nobody wants to say that out loud, but to me, it feels like collusion between insurance carriers and providers. You know, in some instances, I would call it really chummy. Okay. In other instances, depending on, for example, you could have, there's a number of TPAs that are owned by the blues. Okay. They're more interested in their network than they are the employers, just because you've got an inherent conflict. I mean, you're making your money off those network arrangements. Your employers just happen to be unwitting, if you will, trusting. But yeah, I mean, so, but turbocharging, honestly, it's expressly illegal in the Medicare world. So when you're talking about tax dollars and you're turbocharging to access those outlier payments, people go to prison. Hospitals pay tens of millions of dollars in fines. But in the commercial world, it's not quite the same. And so let's add some color to to the concept of turbocharging. Like over a five-year period, I mean, what have you seen with hospitals raising their rates, you know, build charges? Oh, California's bad. Florida's bad. Texas is bad. But, you know, you can see something where a hospital's raising their charges anywhere from 12 to 24x. Unbelievable. Yeah. And, and, so, you know, and then you think about what's built into that, Michael. I think you need to differentiate between professional services and then what I call things that are not professional services. So RX supplies and implants. I mean, you can see the markup on RX or implants. That's, I mean, I've seen 30 X, I kid you not. So something that costs a dollar, you're charging 30, but then you're getting a 25% discount under Cigna. And you, you just like, how does this, how can this even be? I think the, the challenge is that, you know, there's no transparency and employers just don't have any insight. And, and, and part of the challenge with the network discount model is it's, it's this trust us model, right? Where it's, it's, yeah. too co- it's too complicated for you, the employer to understand. So just trust us and we'll get you a good deal. Yeah. You know, and, and I, I agree with that a hundred percent, but you know, you think about every, you know, particularly since we're, you know, still in COVID coming out of COVID, I mean, whatever it is, I mean, if you're a CFO, your your fundamental sole purpose right now is preservation of P&L. And it, there is not a bigger meat pitch than going under the hood. So maybe if you don't understand it, I think you could get motivated to understand it pretty quickly. Because when you start, yeah, I, I would think so. Because, you know, it's the second biggest spend you've got, depending on the size of the company. It could be millions, multiple millions of dollars. I've never understood it, to be honest with you. One, there's a lot of inertia to move away from status quo and do something different. So that's prevalent in, in many aspects of our lives. And I think it, it applies very much here, but going, going back to the concept of turbocharging is illegal in Medicare. So Correct. why isn't it illegal with commercial carriers? And why hasn't this sort of, why haven't we seen anyone bring this to the forefront, you know, in our attention? You know, that's a great question. Cause I mean, I, I think, you know, and, and particularly think about it with use a school district as an example. So tax dollars still an issue. Okay. Even though it's called commercial, I mean, you know, it's not Medicare, so to speak, but still there's tax dollars. And I'm, I'm actually surprised nobody's ever raised the issue because you could go under the hood in any number of different markets and find exactly those type of market dynamics. I mean, if you're the state of Texas or state of California, you've got the, the hammer to stop it. You just have to be able to implement it. I mean, kind of what you said. I mean, I, I think there is a halo effect around, you know, hospitals and stuff like that. But, you know, 
it's not the doctors doing it. That's the thing. I mean, it's, it's the folks that are around the doctors. Well, and I, I think that's a good point because I, I, we certainly don't want to vilify healthcare providers, you know, no, absolutely not. Be, be, because yeah. look, I, I have friends who are healthcare providers, you know, they go into work every day and they're, they're trying to save lives and they're, they're trying to do, you know, trying to do good work. I don't think it's, it's not them who are redriving the healthcare inflation that we see. It's the administration. Exactly. So Doug, you've mentioned to me, there's, there's a number of items that are baked into a, a typical carrier network contract that are just not beneficial to an employer, including hidden fees, limited audit rights, among others. Do you want to expand on some of these things that in your you know, long experience, you know, working in healthcare that you've, you've seen and witnessed in, in a lot of these contracts? Absolutely. You know, and, and I think the big things are the limited ability to audit. Okay. And then ownership of the data. So if you start looking, let's start with ownership of the data. If you start, if you look at Cygnus position, as an example, they take the position. So if you're a self-funded plan, you're paying the premiums, you know, and you're paying whatever it is for Cigna to administer that particular account. I take the position that the claims data is a plan asset. The plan owns the data, has an absolute right to it at any point in time. Sure. Cigna takes a different position, which is, no, they view they own the data. You can access it, and that's the difference, ownership versus access. You can access it on a, on a limited basis when we say so under these conditions, you know, over this small portion of claims. And it doesn't really give you, you know, the true picture of what's happening because everything's happening behind the magic curtain, behind that Wizard of Oz thing. What, what's happening with the different providers? What are they getting paid? And what you're not seeing, though, is because by getting the data, typically for certain group, we will get billed charges and, and allowed amounts, but not always. But oftentimes, if someone's just getting allowed amounts, you're not able to see what's happening with billed charges, right? Correct. Yes. So let me give you another example. So I just ran into this yesterday, was talking to a client and Anthem has a revenue neutrality agreement executed on the side with the hospital system. Okay. Because what happened is when this particular client audited 80, just 80 claims, all inpatient. Okay. 30% of those 80 claims were paid more than the bill charges. And, now, and they asked, so why? think about that. Why, why would that ever happen? Because, well, we're in the process of putting the pieces of the puzzle together, but there is this revenue neutrality agreement. So I guess over the past six months, the hospital wasn't making enough money, whatever it was, through Anthem. So in order to make it up for the second half of the year, there's a commitment from Anthem with this particular hospital that you can bill more than the you know, contracted amount to make up for it. And I'm like, where has the plan ever agreed to something like that? Who implemented this? And it's just one of those kind of things that unless you go under the hood and look at it, you'd have no way of knowing what's going on. And this is a Fortune 500 company. I mean, it's it's you know a forty million dollars spend. I think that just goes to show that there there are lots of misaligned incentives, which we talk about all the time on this show, that exist out there. But <laughs> that's pretty egregious. That's <laughs> pretty egregious. That's, <laughs> that's one of the worst ones I've heard to date. Allowing a hospital to make up for a shortfall in their revenue on an employer just because, right? Right, exactly. And the employer clearly doesn't have any clue. 
they do now. Because when, when we think about this, I mean, 30% of the 80 claims, so what, 24, 25 claims were paid more than what was billed. I mean, it just is unbelievable. Well, and, and that goes to show if there's no auditing being done, I mean, one, we talked about network discounts or fairy dust, right? But if, yep. there's, no, if there's no auditing done, how does the employer know that they're actually getting they don't. what's promised? They don't. Let's talk a little bit about the, I think, some of the auditing challenges that, that exist out there. Certainly, we've run into this where hospital facility bills are notorious for having errors in them. What we've discovered over the last couple of years is that TPAs are not auditing them. They are getting, you know, I think we call it UB40 bills, right? The summary yep. bills. They're getting the summary yep. bills and they're No just, itemized bills, correct. They're just pain. <clears throat> and so we've actually- I mean, I, I, you, you didn't authorize me to spend 50,000 on your credit card, Michael? I mean, <laughs> I thought you did. Okay. okay. I'll pay you back, Scout's Honor. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty unreal that, and these are large claims, right? I mean, these are claims that are yeah. anywhere from 50 to 250 to $500,000 or more. And, and they're being paid without any sort of audit, like to your point of a line item. There are companies out there that are emerging that do the facility medical bill review, right? Where the, the claim has to be transferred from the TPA to the third party. And then they do the line item bill review. And we've seen, right. you know, a number of our clients have seen significant savings from that. But what's interesting is that some of the networks are saying, you can't do that. Yes. Be because their agreements with the facility say that they have to pay off the summary bill and they cannot audit. Yeah. And think who would ever agree to that? Because who would as ever you get into these. That? Who would ever agree with it? Ever. Right. You know? What what yeah. CFO would ever agree to that? That's that's like getting, I mean, that's like getting a fifty thousand dollar bill from you know your general contractor on a remodel project and there's no details. And you're like, well, wait a minute. No details, exactly. In fact, he just barely started. The only thing he's basically done is just, you know, knock out knock, you know, right. knock over a wall. I mean, yeah. Clearly, those those are some some deficiencies, I think, with the network model and certainly those contracts. Is, is there anything else that you'd like to point out to employers that they should be on the lookout or, or things that maybe aren't to their benefit, you know, in, in any of these, you know, traditional network contracts? You know, well, there's also the provision in some instances where they've agreed to pay more than the bill charges. And so when you look at the network access and Cigna does this, in some instances, the provider will be paid more than what they actually bill. Now, I think on the one that I actually sent to you that the, the client actually agreed to that. I don't know why. Probably didn't there, read there's it. There's so much, probably didn't read it. That's ultimately and, and, what it comes and, down to. And, and their broker consultant probably didn't read it either. <laughs> That's exactly right. He was just happy to get that $60,000, you know, commission check or whatever it was. <laughs> And there's a ton of that out there. And so, you know, if I was a CFO, I mean, the first thing I would do is I would call Michael and I would, you know, do that deep dive. You have a right to your contracts. You have a right to know what they provide and, you know, look for those provisions, the audit rights. Are you paying more than what's, you know, billed? What type of, you know, position do they take with respect to claims data? Is it yours or is it actually Cigna's? And you can raise, you know, raise those issues. Yeah. It's your money. I mean, it's, it's your money. It's, exactly. Yeah. 
So interesting development, less than a month ago, the Department of Health and Human Services issued final rules for health plan transparency regulations, which basically states insurers must now disclose cost-sharing estimates at the request of an enrollee, and they have to publicly release negotiated rates for in-network providers, including their, their out-of-network allowed amounts, billed charges, and drug pricing information. So what are your thoughts on these new rules, and do you think it will actually come to fruition? Boy, that's a great question because, you know, obviously we've got a change in the leadership in the country. I don't know where Biden falls in all this. I can't believe he wouldn't maintain this momentum moving forward. But politically, I'm, I'm, I'm apathetic, to be honest with you. So it doesn't yep. matter to me. It's just hard to say. I mean, because, you know, Biden is a creature of D.C. He's been around there for, what, five decades. A lot of special interests are interested in not letting this become, you know, reality. It'd be great if it is, because, you know, it's like everything else. When you start looking at charge masters and all those different things, I mean, the oldest game in the book, Michael, is, well, the charge master only increased 2%. Well, it increased 40% on the services people use. And, you know, it went down for the things that nobody uses. Right. And, you know, and, and RX, I mean, if you look at the charge masters, I mean, prescription drugs, CT scans, I mean, those things are literally ATM machines. I mean, because... You know, you're billing out 105 million on a CT scan that only costs you six million to operate. And that includes everything. That's the staffing, the overhead, everything. It's just a license to print money. I think that's another good analogy. So let, let's just let's just expand on that for for the fun of it, okay. right? Why explain to our audience why a commercial insurance plan, self-funded or or not, could be seen as an ATM machine for these 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 hospitals? Well, I mean, I I think that when you when you when you look at, is anybody paying attention to anything? I, I guess really for lack of a better term, it's just nobody's really monitoring the store. And, you know, if, if, if there's no place for these people to go, if they're not able to shop, okay, comparatively look at prices and everything else, maybe they don't want to go to PSJ in Southern California. Maybe they want to go to, I don't know, Cedar sinai But you have to have the ability to make a conscious decision to, you know, be careful with your money and to shop around. I mean, think about this. I mean, would you drive? I don't know where you live in in Southern California, but if you live in Los Angeles, I mean, would you drive to, you know, Laguna Beach to save $2,000? I would. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. yeah. Make it a fun day. You you wouldn't have to pay me much to drive to Laguna Beach because it's a pretty nice place. (laughs) (laughs) Probably (laughs) more analogy. Go the other way then. So, yeah. (laughs) But Um, yes, I would drive to save $2,000. Absolutely. Well, Well, we'll talk a little bit more about benefit design incentives in a second, but clearly the network discount model, right? It allows costs to rise at extraordinary rates. And I think this is, this is a key issue that most employers have, whether or not they realize it's their issue or not. Can you speak to how this aligns with employer fiduciary duty under ERISA? Absolutely. That that's right there. I think the next big thing that's coming when you, when you look at the 401k world, I mean, there's fiduciary responsibility embedded in that entire universe. Okay. Mm-hmm whether it's your advisor, whether it's the plan administrator, there's definitely fiduciary responsibility in terms of what's being communicated, how those plan assets are managed. And I think the exact same thing is going to happen in healthcare because the dollars are so big and it's gotten so out of control. So think about this. If you're a publicly traded company and you're substantially overpaying, I mean, pursuant to it, let's just say a 25% discount, off of a 2,000% charge match, you're substantially overpaying. Mm-hmm. And it affects the shareholder value, it affects the value of the company. 
and and I think that is the next big thing coming down the pike. I really do because there's there's a lot of people talking about it. There's a lot of you know litigation that's moving slowly but surely. To simplify it is under ERISA, the employer has a fiduciary responsibility to ensure that they're that they should be paying a fair price right for healthcare on behalf Correct. of their employees, and just by the nature of participating in a health insurance product that uses the network discount, you can't really meet that fiduciary responsibility, can you? I think it'd be exceedingly difficult because when you start looking at so think about it like this, let's take it to the next step. You're participating in a, in a network discount model, whatever the percentage of Medicare is, maybe you're paying 600% of Medicare. I mean, is that really a fair price to pay for those services? Kind of going back to our beer analogy. Or knowing that there can be a thousand percent price variation among different providers in the network and you're not helping employees go to the low you know a a cost effective place within the network it's i think it's those are two areas where i think there could be significant risk for an employer without a doubt I mean, because you think about being particularly more so to the one with the employees, because that's their money, because, you know, their co-pays, their deductibles, you're making them overpay for something where they don't necessarily have to. Right. You're not fulfilling your duty. And if you've given them one, insurance carriers will not provide good tools to steer you to cost effective providers because one that they're contractually prohibited from doing that. Right. Yeah. They can't, exactly. they can't, they can't steer within their network. So if you, the employer are not providing anything to help them find cost-effective care and save money, I mean, that could be, that could be what blows this up is an employee suing their employer for breach of, of fiduciary duty. Exactly. And that happens all the time in the 401k world, all the time. And I think exactly the same thing. So just, just, it, it's just it's, it's the, cause we're, we're in that perfect storm. I mean, we're George Clooney. You know, that big wave is right there. We just, you know, we got to figure out yeah, when is it going to hit, you know? Yep. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the good work that you're doing to help employers. So certainly in, in my world, we're helping more and more employers leverage different tactics really to circumvent the network, go around it to establish more predictable and, and transparent pricing. Uh, and that includes uh, pre-negotiated uh, case rates or bundled pricing, you know, as well as reference-based pricing. So tell us a little bit about the direct contracting work that you're doing for employers and what that consists. Absolutely. absolutely. Thank you. So doing a ton of direct contracting work on behalf of self-funded plans, reference-based pricing plans across the U.S. But typically what I'll do is I will grab a hospital's financials. And in those financials, you're going to have their Medicare payment to cost report, what the payer breakdown is, what their Medicare percentage is, what their overall collection rate is, what their true costs are. But allows you to at least get a snapshot of what's happening inside that facility financially and most importantly, what type of cost shifting is occurring? Because you can tell just by the numbers, what's Medicare, what are the Medicare charges? What's, what are the Medicare payments? What are the commercial charges? What are the commercial payments? And you can you know, just reverse engineer. Yeah, fascinating. You know, using some, yeah, to see what kind of cost shifting is happening. I'm not saying everybody's awful, but you can go to a lot of markets and you, know, you can go to an employer and say, listen, I mean, the cost shifting that's happening here is 6.4x. I think that's unreasonable when you look at what the hospital will accept for payment. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, you can look at an AGB percentage. Okay. And I mean, I've seen single digits 
You go out to somewhere like in Ohio or Kentucky, you can be in the 9.7. So in other words, you're billing out $100, you're collecting 9.7, and the hospital's good with that. Wow. And so, so yeah, so, think about so, that. So collecting almost 10% of what they bill and, and covering their costs. Exactly. Interesting. So you're leveraging data on, on what they're getting from Medicare and what they're reporting is their actual costs. And where are you getting that data? So all of that is available. So I actually have a client here in Austin who has all of that historically from 97. And so not only can you get your cost to charge ratio, but you can also get their true cost. That's available. All of that information is available. You just have to know where to go find it, how to organize it and what it means. But that's, that's where I get it here. Yeah. And, and so you can, you can basically say, look, based on the data that you've published, that is public information. And submitted to CMS under oath. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You've certified that this should be true and accurate, that X percent of Medicare more than covers your cost. Correct. Of doing business. Okay. Now. Right. And when you look at what you're collecting overall, because I mean, think about what AGB is. It's it's all claims divided by all payments. Well, so it's hold, Medicare, hold Medicaid. E- explain yeah. explain that acronym, AGB. AGB is average gross bill charge. That's okay, what it got is. It. Got it. And so it's going to be all your claims divided by all your payments. So it's going to be Medicare, Medicaid, mm-hmm. and commercial. And I guess there's a very small percentage of charity care in there as well. That's the other thing. I mean, you you know, you look at these systems that are paying less than. in terms of charity care. And you think, my God, does that even happen when you're a massive not-for-profit organization, but different topic, different time. But you just, you run the math. You can go to, for example, Summa Health in Ohio, 9.7%. I was shocked when I saw that. So you're telling me you bill a hundred and you're happy with $9 and 70 cents. That's how you can run a profitable health system there. Yeah. Well, it's just going back to the the fairy dust. Right. Exactly. (laughs) So if you're paying, if you're paying, you know, a 50% discount, okay, think about this. You're getting a 50% discount with Blue Cross Blue Shield in Ohio. You're paying 50 bucks when, you know, they're happy with 9.7. I'll pay you 11 and you should be good with that. But unless you, you know, you have that information and data, how would you know it? Right. And so that's the, that's the tactic that you're, you're leveraging when you go and you initiate those conversations to, to negotiate a direct contract. Exactly. And then really what it comes down to is, you know, you're an, uh, a charitable organization your local employers would like to establish some very, very fair common middle ground. We're not here to rip you off. We're just here to pair a fair price using information. It's just like buying a car on the internet. I mean, before people knew what the spread was, you're overpaying. It's the same concept. Yeah. And so either the hospital wants to do it or they don't. And in some instances, I mean, I can tell you in, in North Carolina, which is, you know, to me, the battleground right now in the country, they just tell you, whatever, go someplace else. Really? They, they, yeah. there's, there's no interest. No interest, none. Figure it out. Don't care. We don't. We don't. We will not. We will not base any direct contract on a percentage of Medicare. We will not do it. Hmm. I mean, because you think about what that does. I mean, so if you're doing it based on charges, I mean, it still gives them the leverage to set the price, whatever yeah. it is. Yeah. Give our audience some insight when you're when you are negotiating a successful direct contract with the hospital facility. What are some of the key components to a successful agreement? It's got to be paid consistent with the SPD. So it's got to be a covered benefit. It's just not a license for you to do proton beam therapy or whatever it is you think is. Yeah, it's got to be a covered benefit consistent with the SPD. You have to have the right to audit and it's got to be a clean claim. I mean, so they're just basic things when it comes to managing, you know, a self-insured plan. 
mm-hmm. that it's, you know, this is not some fully insured thing where, where, you know, we're going to pay for experimental investigation or we're going to pay for a lot of these different things without the ability to audit. It's got to be a covered charge. So there's about three or four things like that that I think are absolutely critical. Otherwise, it's a five-page agreement, and it's boilerplate, but for some of those different things. And you can steer, you know, wave co-pays deductible because nobody wants to chase Michael for $80, you know, for the copay you never made. But just, you know, focus the steerage, wave co-pays deductible so there's literally no out-of-pocket, and it's a beautiful thing. It's, it's honestly, it shouldn't be complex. No. And, and I think, you know, I always, I always like to say there's, um, there's elegance in simplicity. Waving the copay is, is such an elegant benefit design, you know, it is be, because it, it provides the right incentive for, for the employees to go to a place that's been pre-vetted as, you know, being a quality place to get care where, where you can get a free price or a fair price. So if the, if the employee, I mean, the employer wants to drive this behavior because it's a safe harbor. We know it's quality. We know it's, it's, it's a, it's a fair price. Why not give the employee the incentive to go there? Because the exactly for for hospital for hospital care, the employee cost share is typically a very small portion to what the overall charge is, anyways. It's it's insignificant. Exactly. It's insignificant. And you think about this. I mean, you, you know, you're creating the incentive for you know if there's something seriously wrong to go to the doctor. Because I mean, obviously with COVID, one of the big issues people have is they go to the doctor. I just read this thing about people aren't getting mammograms. Okay, how important is that? You know. But you create the right incentives for, for people to do the right thing at a fair price, and it's a wonderful thing. Everybody's getting what they need. Hospitals are being paid fairly, and people are getting care. And so for, for a group that has a reference-based pricing plan in place, I mean, this is a way to really to establish a safe harbor where it eliminates the potential for friction and balance billing that may happen with other providers, correct? Correct. Absolutely. you got to have a safe harbor. If you're doing reference-based pricing, which obviously is no network, but if you've got a, a place for these people to go, one safe harbor place at a minimum, there's some place for these people to go where it's not going to be a problem. One of my clients, they they made the jump to reference based pricing on on July first. How's it going so far? Financially, it's going well. Unit costs are in the twenty percent, about twenty percent lower than what they were with their previous network. Okay, and and that's what they needed to achieve. Now. What, what oftentimes people don't talk about is, is the, the friction or, or the, uh, the problems that can happen, right, with the reference-based oh, yeah. uh, pricing agreement. And uh, essentially, they, they did this very quickly. We advised them to kind of wait, you know, six months okay. until they, they could do more education, but they did it pretty quickly. One of the people in the C-suite got cancer, and the place that he decided to go decided that they weren't going to um, accept the, the reference reimbursement. And, uh, yeah. and that the maximum discount they would give is 20% of bill charges. Wow. And subsequently they've decided this, this one facility that they're no longer going to accept any form of reference-based pricing and will bill the full charges. So perfect example, right? Have you encountered this, yeah. this type of situation? And, and when you're working with an employer, you know, how do you approach it and, and how do you advise them? Absolutely. So let, let me tell you the skinny on this. Okay. Now what that hospital just did. Okay. If you look at 501R, you can pull the IRS regs, okay? And you cannot unilaterally charge somebody gross bill charges, okay, without first making a determination of eligibility under their financial assistance policies. And if you look at 
this particular hospital's, you know, FAP. Because if you look at the regs, the regs specifically provide you cannot make a distinction on insurance status. It's solely based on all deans' inability to pay the bill. So it doesn't matter whether I'm in network, out of network, have RBP, don't have RBP. If I can't make the payment, okay, I at least am eligible to submit an application, okay? And there's a lot of these gyrations that are going into the marketplace that violate 501R, okay? Mm -hmm. Jeopardize their 501C3 status. And in particular with what you just described, I don't know anything about, you know, this particular, you said C-suite, so I'm assuming he's making some money. But when you start looking at cancer care and everything else involved, I mean, I don't care if you're making 300000 but if your bills are 300000 I mean, you're going to get something more than a 20% discount, I would suspect. That's the direction I would go, okay? And in particular, without, you know, you can't do that, and a lot of systems do it. UPMC is notorious for doing it. Yeah. Th- we want this- Michael to, yeah. This, in this particular group, there's there's lots of, of different options for them in their in their marketplace. Yeah. So you know we're working on the safe harbors and and steering. And look, it's not that different than a narrow network. There's narrow network products out there that eliminate facilities. Correct. So so the only yeah. difference here is the communication you know with employees to just understand that this facility is basically no longer an option, and you should you should never go there. Exactly. And you know when you set those expectations, that's the other things. I mean, when you set those expectations that are reality based as opposed to, oh, it's never going to be a problem. You, you need to set those expectations low and then exceed them. And, you know, there are facilities that are like that. Because, I mean, I can just tell you, Michael, just when you look at the market dynamics now, yeah. I mean, half of the hospitals, you know, by, by first quarter next year are going to be operating in the red. I mean, it is a cash crunch. I mean, I think I just read in Becker's, what, 67 hospitals have canceled all their procedures again because of COVID. But, I mean, it, it is. I mean, it's a whole different world right now. I don't feel too bad because uh, they all got a lot of PPE money too. So <laughs> they did. I mean, exactly. I think even well, I, you know, I, I forgot that. I, I think it may have been you know PSJ. They got you know seven hundred million, and they're still operating you know at a deficit. And I just I, it, it boggles me. Yeah, yeah. So Doug, when when you're um, working with an employer, uh, what's your fee structure? How do you contract with an employer? So typically, what I'll do is I will just do a flat fee. And then hopefully be able to create, you know, a small PMPM or PEPM, whatever works, mm-hmm. uh, for 12 or 18 months. Yep. I mean, so putting together the agreement is, is very straightforward. I mean, it's a template that I've got. There is a cost of the financials, which we get. There is some time. But if you can't get something done in two or three hours in terms of a conversation, it's just not going to happen. I mean, it doesn't need to go back and forth and it's not complicated. I never let it be complicated. But, yeah, so flat fee. And then a small PMPM for 12 or 18 months and I'm good. And so the, the PMPM fee is really uh, for you to go out and establish those direct contracts or when issues come up, engage the, um, exactly. the, the CFO or the, you know, the, the financial leadership at the hospital. Yep. Great. And, and so, you know, let's say we have XYZ employer and, um, you know, they're, they're decided they're going to move into, um, you know, reference-based pricing, or, you know, they just want some direct contracts that they're going to kind of offer outside of their network. What's the first step in identifying, you know, some facilities, you know, um, that would be reasonable, you know, for that employer population and where their employees live to maybe reach out to? You know, I mean, I think honestly, starting with the financials at these particular facilities, you know, depending on where you are in the country, pull the financials and we can take a look at, 
I mean, is this a healthy organization? You know, where are they in terms of market position? Are they a monopoly? Are there, is there competition? That's really going to drive the bus, yeah. I think, at least initially. No, I think the competition thing is is important. Uh, there's because there's obviously certain areas that don't offer, you know, competition. We certainly have that area here in certain parts of California where there's a, a, a monopolistic environment, and we've created incentives for people to just travel, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. That's great. I, I appreciate that, and and hopefully, um, you know, some good insight for our, for our listeners on kind of how to go about establishing a direct contract. But I also wanted to bring something else up. Uh, you're an advisor to an organization called Rest in Peace Medical Debt, which I think is a pretty cool organization. Do you, do you want to share anything about that organization? Absolutely. So, what what RRP Medical Debt does? It was actually founded. There's a guy, uh, Jerry Ashton, who's a friend of mine. He's 83 years old, and he was in the hospital collection business for a number of years. So on the other side of the fence, collecting, you know, outstanding bills and then had, believe it or not, was one of the septuagenarians in the Occupy Wall Street movement. So 70 something years old, (laughs) he's a hippie at heart. Okay, he is. He's actually from San Francisco, but super interesting guy. And just had one of those, you know, coming to Jesus moments, like I'm going to help people as opposed to, you know, whatever it is, started this. John Oliver found them and <laughs> he couldn't believe it. There's a whole episode, you know, devoted, you know, to RIP medical debt because they couldn't believe you could buy $15 million of medical bills for $15,000. Okay. Yeah. And he wanted to set the record because Oprah originally had the talk show record and he wanted to beat Oprah. And so he featured RIP medical debt that we're going to give away $15 million. And it was, it was a great, great episode. Anyway, they buy medical debt on the secondary market and it's, it's one of the best things you could ever do because, you know, you're dealing with something that, you know, a lot of these big companies will buy, you know, a thousand dollars for a penny. Well, you want to get it for a half a penny. Okay. And then people will, you know, and there's large charitable organizations that contribute to this, whether it's the Gates Foundation, there's a number of organizations that help fund it, churches and whatnot. And then you get to mail out letters to all of these families. So think about this. You're sitting in Kokomo, Indiana, you got an $1,800 bill, you need to get tires and you want to go on vacation and you get this thing where the medical bill is taken care of. It's the most uplifting thing you can ever imagine because these people, you know, are struggling and need help. And when you can deliver something like that, it's awesome. So, so essentially what the organization does is it reaches out to people who have outstanding medical bills and basically pays off their, their, their medical debt because they know that they can't afford it. That's exactly right. I think it's, it's, um, you know, one, understanding that there's a lot of hospitals in this country that have uh, pretty unscrupulous billing practices. <sighs> Was it Marshall Allen who wrote an article on on this? Yeah. Uh, kind of yep. just, for ProPublica, yeah. For ProPublica, describing these practices yeah. and, and how it puts people in collections. And it really targets a lot of people who are just not making a lot of money. You're a debtor slave. That's what it is. You are literally a debtor slave. And you go to places like Kansas, there's places in Kansas, like Coffeeville, Kansas. And, you know, the judge is getting a fee. The lawyer was getting a fee. Obviously, the hospital's getting paid. And you're putting these people in prison because they can't pay the, you know, $4,200 or $420, you know, outstanding hospital bill. It's just yeah, it's, it's unconscionable. It's unconscionable. And it's it's pr- it's pretty amazing that that in the United States of America that this that this happens. But um, I think it was uh, David Contorno who I think posted something about uh, rest in peace medical debt. And I immediately donated $500 because um, I was touched 
by this type of nonprofit and, you know, its ability to make a positive impact in, in the lives of other Americans who, who need help. Um, so Absolutely. I wanted, I saw that you were an advisor there. I think it's a great organization and I just, I wanted to highlight it to, to the listeners on this show. Well, thank you. It is a great organization and they do great things. And, you know, think about this, you're delivering such happy news to people. I mean, it is, it's not a negative thing. There's nothing negative about it. You're relieving a big problem in their life. Yeah. Great thing. Great, great way to make a positive impact in the lives of others. And, and, uh, with actually a little bit of money, I mean, I'm sure, you know, $25 exactly right. goes, a, goes a long $25 will buy you 2,500 bucks of medical bills. I mean, think about that That's roughly. Incredible. So Doug, we talked about a lot of good stuff here. If there was one question that I should have asked you, but I didn't, what would it be? What are we going to do about Michigan football? I mean, I'm sorry. I'm fixated on it. I can't believe you just went there. Drive a, drive a stake through my heart. I don't even know if, if my listeners know that I'm a Michigan alum and a diehard Michigan football fan. Um, but uh, it's, it's rough in this household right now. We it's, it's football season and um, we're, we're emotionally distraught over here in the Maneri household. Yes. And so, you know, Aldine family are Illinois folks, Iowa, and then Michigan folks. So we've kind of kind of split Big Ten household. But I definitely drink the Kool-Aid and have been drinking it for a while. I'm with you. Emotionally distraught. <laughs> really am. It's Thanksgiving tomorrow. And I'm, th- I'm thankful for, for, for so much. But I'd really be thankful if somebody could just figure out a way to fire Jim Harbaugh. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> my only... My, my, my only concern is who else are you going to get? I mean, Urban I, Meyer, would he coach so? Uh, I mean, I don't know if he would or not. No. That's no. the thing. But, All right. Well, it's going to take me a while to recover, I, recover from that comment there, Doug. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Doug, how, how can people interested in uh, learning more about, you know, what you do and, and, you know, how you may be able to help them? How can they get in touch with you? Absolutely. So um, I actually do have a website, so DougAldean.com. I'm out there on LinkedIn pretty religiously. My wife actually put a Twitter thing for me. I'm not, you know, so I'm a pretty easy guy to find. Yeah. Awesome. So one of those three vehicles, you can find me for sure. Perfect. Perfect. Well, on behalf uh, of our listeners and myself, I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to, to join us. A uh, bit of fun conversation and, and hopefully uh, insightful uh, for our listeners. And Michael, thank you for having me very much. I appreciate it tremendously. Thank you. You bet. You bet. To our listeners, we hope you enjoyed uh, this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. And with that, we'll sign off wherever you're at. We hope you have a great day. and Have a good holiday. Talk to you next time. See you, Dad. Okay, bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Reconstructing Healthcare. If you like what you heard here, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in continuing the conversation, please visit us at www.reconstructinghealthcare.com where you can access the show notes for this episode and links to Doug Aldean's website and contact information. Lastly, we mentioned RIP Medical Debt at the end of the conversation, and I would encourage everyone to visit their website and consider a donation during this holiday season. The site is www.ripmedicaldebt.org, and it's a great way to make a positive impact in someone's life. Thanks again for being part of our community, and we'll see you next time on the Reconstructing Healthcare Podcast.